I love what verse 16 says. Here in Galatians 2, Paul says, Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we might be justified by faith in Christ. That's the good news. The bad news is you're guilty. You've broken the law. You deserve the wrath of God. The good news is Jesus is the substitute who took that wrath for us. He redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, so that we are justified in Him by faith. That's good news, isn't it? Let's go to that God now who justifies us and seek His blessing as we open up His Word this morning. Father, we thank You for the wonderful, wonderful truths that we've already heard this morning. Scripture is such a wonderful source of divine truth. The world gropes around in the darkness. We live in a confused age where postmodernism has shattered any idea of truth, any idea of absolute certainty. People live rightly so in fear and dread, turning to drugs and alcohol and so many other things to drown out the fear in their hearts. But as believers, we know the truth. We know absolute truth because You've made it known to us in Your Word. It's come to us with such power, such clarity, such forcefulness, such efficacy to save us and change us and make us new. And for that, we're thankful. We're thankful that You have made it very clear how we can get to You, the way by which we can make it to God, make it to heaven, by which salvation may be attained. We know that Works could never contribute to our justification. We could never merit a right standing with You by our own efforts and our own merit. If we are to be saved, it must be by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And so we cling to Him. We hold fast to Him. And we know that You hold fast to us. Lord, I pray that You would give us as a church the same passion for the Gospel that is evident in Paul's writing to the Galatians. His love for the Gospel, his love for the glory of Christ, his zeal for the truth, his desire to bring every thought captive to the obedience of Christ is evident as he refutes the false Gospel of the false teachers there, the Judaizers. And even though the Judaizers themselves don't exactly exist today, yet their lie continues on. The lie of hell over and over again that we get to God by our works is resurfaced and propagated and repackaged by so many different groups. We pray that as a church we would stand against the devil's lies and that we would hold forth the word of light in hopes that it would shine forth and men and women may be saved. Now as we open the Scripture, as we consider Your truth, help us. Give us wisdom. Give us grace. Give us illumination and understanding that we might love You more and obey Your Word. We pray these things for Christ's sake. Amen. Well, we come to that portion in our service where we open the Word of God and hear from heaven. So, if you have your Bible, you can turn with me again to the final chapter of 1 John. 1 John chapter 5. And we come for this morning to the verses that we began to introduce last time. Namely, verses 1 through 5. 1 John chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. This passage here really sums up the whole letter of 1 John. John basically distills all that he said so far into this one little text of Scripture. As you know, John wrote the letter as a series of tests by which his readers could determine if they had eternal life or not. By which they could determine if they were truly saved or not, if they were true Christians. And in the letter, he presents three tests in particular. Three tests over and over again that would provide that assurance. The doctrinal test, the moral test, and the social test. Or you could say the theological test, the behavioral test, and the relational test. John's message is very simple. True Christians believe the truth, obey the truth, and love in truth. They believe the truth, obey the truth, and love and truth. Those three tests constitute the test of saving faith. 
They are the characteristics of one who is a true believer. And in this passage, John presents all three of these tests together in one little passage. He distills the whole letter into five verses for us. So if you want to know what 1 John's about, you came on the right week. This is it. John sums it up for us. Let's read the passage together once again. 1 John chapter 5, starting in verse 1. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And whoever loves the Father loves the child born of Him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and observe His commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world our faith. Who is the one who overcomes the world but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? I told you last week that there are two terms there that help us understand what this passage is about. Now, the first term is born of God, born of God. The second term is overcomes, overcomes. In verse 4, John uses both of those terms together and gives us a summary of the text. Verse 4 says, For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. John describes Christians here as those who are born of God and as those who have overcome the world. They are born-again overcomers. And in this text, John describes who fits that category. That's important, isn't it? Because there are many people who claim to be born again Many people who claim to overcome the world, they even sing about it in popular Christian radio. So many people claim it. The question is, is it real? Well, John tells us how to know. In other words, this passage is about how to know that you are born of God. How to know that you are an overcomer. John seeks, as always, to provide us with assurance. I told you last time that the problem that this passage deals with is the same problem that the whole letter addresses. That of false conversion. False conversion. The problem is the same in our day as it was in John's day. There are multitudes of men and women who profess to be overcomers, who profess to be born of God, profess Jesus as their Savior, profess Christ as their Lord, and yet in reality they are deceived. Their lives testify against them. There is no evidence of transformation, no evidence of the work of grace in their hearts, no evidence of a work of the Spirit in their souls. They are seduced, deluded, as to the reality of their true spiritual condition. And what a terrible place to be. A terrible place. To think that you're headed for heaven only to find out at the very end that you're on the way to hell. To claim to be a Christian, to go to church, to profess Jesus as Savior, to claim to be on the narrow way, but in reality you're on the broad path to destruction. There are many such people like that today in evangelicalism. People who claim to believe the same gospel Paul preached, but they're not really in Christ. I read an article somewhere this past week that claimed that 62% of professing evangelical born-again Christians support LGBTQ laws and rights. Don't even get me started on the polls that talk about abortion, divorce, etc., etc., etc. These are people who claim to be born of God, claim to be overcomers, claim to be Christians, and yet they actively support that which is opposed to God's design for sex and marriage. Clearly something is wrong. These people claim to have overcome the world, and yet they love and support the world system. Something's wrong. These people are deceived. They claim to be born again, but in reality they are not. The good news is, as Christians, we can know that we are born of God. We can know with certainty that we are overcomers. We can know that we are true Christians. We can know, as John says in verse 13, that we have eternal life. That's what we want, isn't it? We can know that because true believers give evidence 
of the new birth. True believers give evidence of the new birth. But what is that evidence? How do we know we're born of God? John answers that question this morning by highlighting three marks of an overcomer. Three marks of one who has been born of God. We looked at the first two last week, and this morning we'll pick up with the third one. But before we do that, let me give you a little bit of review. The first mark of an overcomer that we saw in this passage last week is faith. Faith. Look at verse 1. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. I told you that that word believes there, pistuo, means persuasion and therefore commitment. It involves a lifelong, heartfelt commitment to Christ as Savior and Lord. And it's a present tense verb there denoting continuous action. Saving faith is a continuing faith, a persevering faith, a permanent faith. John is saying every person who continues to believe, who goes on believing that Jesus is the Christ, is born of God. True believers believe that Jesus is the Christ. We talked about that extensively last time. Christ is not His last name, right? Christ is a descriptive title defining who He is. He is the Christos, the Anointed One. He is the prophet, priest, and king, and savior of His people. He's the one appointed by God to be the Savior and the Redeemer. He is, as His name says, the Anointed Savior. That's who He is. And true Christians believe that truth. We believe that Jesus is the Christ. That involves believing the way of salvation, taught to Him as our prophet. It involves faith and trust in His finished work as our priest. And it involves a submission to Him and His Lordship as our King. True Christians believe that Jesus is the Christ. And all who believe give evidence that they are born of God. All who believe give evidence that they have been regenerated by the grace of the Holy Spirit. Because we have the life of God, we have the seed of God, we have the nature of God, we therefore believe in the Son of God. That's what true believers do. And we'll look at that again, uh, the first mark of faith, in verses 4 and 5 in just a little bit. But we also considered the second mark of an overcomer last week, and that is love. Love. Look at verse 1 again. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and whoever loves the Father loves the child born of Him. The word and here introduces the second mark. Not only do true Christians believe the truth about Jesus, but they also love. They love John says, whoever loves the father loves the child born of him. Whoever loves the parent loves the child. Whoever loves the begetter loves the begotten. Whoever loves the father loves the child born of him. If you love God the Father, you will love all of those born of God. All of those begotten of God. We noted last time that this would include Christ, who is the eternal, essential, singular Son of God. But it also includes believers, the adopted, regenerated, plural children of God. True Christians love God, they love Christ, and they love other believers. And they display the reality of that love, as we've noted before, through selfless, sacrificial service. Love, mercy, grace, gentleness, kindness, forgiveness, etc. So love, then, is the second mark of an overcomer. But that brings us to a question. How do we know that we love the children of God? How do we know that we love? What are some practical, tangible ways by which we can determine if we really do love God's people? Everyone says they love, right? How often do you meet people who say, yeah, I hate other Christians. I hate other believers. Nobody would admit that. But the Bible teaches that we do. There are tangible ways to know the difference between love and hatred. Look at verse 2. This brings us to the third mark of an overcomer, namely obedience. Obedience. Look at verse 2. 
By this we know that we love the children of God. We can know that we love God's children. We can know that we love other believers. How? When we love God and observe His commandments. We know that we love God's children when we love God. That's where it starts. That's first in priority, our love for God. We love Him. John's already made the point that if you don't love your brother, you don't love God. Now he makes the point that if you don't love God, you don't love your brother. You cannot genuinely and truly love the people of God unless you first love God. The only way to love with a Christ-like love, a divine love, a true God-ordained love, a God-given love, is to be in a saving and loving relationship with the God who loves you. The God who has shed His love abroad in your heart. In other words, love for God and love for others is linked together. You can't separate the two. You can't separate them. It begins with a love for God. You know, you hear a lot today about love, tolerance, acceptance, love. In case you haven't already heard, this is Pride Month. Pride Month, a month in which the sin of homosexuality and the gender fluidity movement is celebrated. A month in which people take pride in their sin. And you know, it's not uncommon to hear homosexuals or those who support the movement to say things like, well, you know, love is love. I can't help but love whom I love. Or I should just be able to love whomever I want. It doesn't hurt you. We should just be able to love. The problem is, that's not love. Homosexuality is not love. That's sin. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Love does not seek to engage people in sin. It does not seek to facilitate people in sin, encourage people to sin. Love, true love, is a pure love. It's a sanctifying love. In Ephesians 5, Paul says to husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church who gave Himself up for her that He might sanctify her. That's what real love wants. Real love is concerned with someone's eternal good. Not merely their temporal happiness. True love is concerned with someone's purity, his holiness, his sanctification, his salvation. And that begins with a love for God. Our love for God then purifies and sanctifies our love, which then flows to other believers. That's where it begins. And how do we know that we love God? Verse 2 again. By this we know we love the children of God when we love God and observe His commandments. We only love other people when we love God and observe His commandments. Our observing of His commandments is the evidence that we love God and we love His people. The word observe here means to do, to practice. We do His commandments. We keep His law. We do what He says. And it's a present tense verb. So again, it denotes continuous action. The idea here is that of habitual obedience. Obedience is the dominant pattern of your life. I told you before, this is not perfection, it's direction. right? Obedience is the path on which the believer walks. Does he stumble and does he fall on that path? Absolutely. But does he ever revert off that path completely? No. True Christians are characterized by increasing, habitual, growing obedience to the Word of God. So the ones who love God are the ones who obey His commandments. Everybody says they love God. But the question you ask them is, are you obeying God? John 14, 15, what did Jesus say? If you love Me, you'll do what? Keep My commandments. That's the tangible, practical way that you can know that you really Love God. John essentially restates that same truth in verse 3. Look at verse 3. For this is the love of God, or this is what love for God looks like, this is how love for God displays itself, that we keep His commandments. Love for God is evidenced by obedience to His law. Obedience to His commandments. Again, John's message is simple. Faith in Christ produces love for God and others, which produces and evidences itself in obedience to God's 
commandments. We obey His commandments. Now, what are His commandments? What commandments are we to obey? We've talked about that before. It's the moral law of God. The moral law of God. The law of God, summarized in the Ten Commandments, written in the hearts of all men by creation, written on the hearts of God's people savingly in regeneration. The law of God summarized by Jesus in the two commands to love God and love your neighbor. We call it the law of Christ. That's what Paul called in the book of Galatians. It's the law of Christ, the law of love. John himself summarized that law for us back in chapter 3, verse 23. Chapter 3, verse 23. There he says, This is His commandment, that we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as He commanded us. There's the twofold command of Christ, summarized by John in a slightly different way. The second commandment remains the same, He just alters the first commandment. Love God, love your neighbor, and love for God includes believing that Jesus is the Son of God. And these two commandments, Scripture teaches, fulfill all the rest. If you love God and you love your neighbor, you fulfill the whole law. So what then, the question can be considered, what then does this have to do with our love for others? What does obeying God's commandments have to do with loving others? Well, if you love God, you keep His commandments, and if you keep His commandments, you display love to other people. Because the law directs our love. The law is fulfilled by love. Just think about the Ten Commandments for a minute. God gave those to Israel on two tablets. The first table of the law has four commandments. The second table has six commandments. The first four deal with our love for God. The last six deal with our love for our neighbor. The second table includes the commandments of honor your father and mother, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not lie, do not steal, do not covet, etc., 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 If you love your neighbor, you're going to do those things. You're going to obey those commandments. You're going to do what God says. And that's why Scripture teaches that if you love your neighbor, you fulfill the law. Remember, Romans 13, Paul says, For this, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, Paul says, it is summed up in this saying, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. You got that? Love is the motive that drives obedience. Love is the motive that drives obedience. If I love my neighbor, I'm not going to murder him, right? Fair enough. If I love my neighbor, I'm not going to commit adultery with his wife. I'm not going to steal his belongings. I'm not going to lie to him, covet his possessions, etc. If I love my neighbor... Truly from the heart, with a Christ-like love, I'm going to obey the commandments of God. One commentator said, the law and love are not contradictory, they are complementary. They go together. Not as a method of salvation, we just saw that in Galatians 2. Those are two mutually exclusive paths to justification. But if the law is used rightly, then it's for good. If we use the law to lead us to Christ to be saved, and then Christ leads us to obey His law out of love, we've now used the law for its God-ordained purpose. So the evidence then that we love God and love our neighbor is that we keep His commandments. And John adds at the very end of verse 3, and His commandments are not burdensome. The word burdensome means heavy, oppressive, weighty. John is saying that Believers do not find God's law to be an oppressive, overwhelming weight on their back. Christ is not some harsh taskmaster who lays unbearable burdens upon us. True true believers realize that God's law is not a form of slavery. It's not some form of cosmic killjoy. On the contrary, the law is what guides us in our freedom to use it for what is right. The law teaches us how to use our freedom for good. It teaches us what is best for us, what is best for human flourishment. Just by way of example, you know, Scripture teaches us we 
shall not be drunk with wine, that no drunkard will inherit the kingdom of God. And people say, oh, God's raining on my parade, right? He wants to ruin my Saturday evening party. But then what happens when people engage in drunkenness? We read about it all the time, right? Drunk drivers killing people in wrecks, fights, bar brawls, etc. In other words, this sin is bad for you. That's why God commands you to abstain from it. The law of God is for our good. Believers understand that. We love God. We trust God. And therefore, we delight in the law of God. We love the law. We don't find it burdensome. John is not saying that obeying God isn't difficult, by the way. He's not saying it's easy. Obviously, it's not easy. Because as he taught in Galatians 5, the spirit and the flesh are at war with one another. Obeying the law of God can be difficult. But it's not a joyless drudgery for us. Because we love the law of God. We love God and we love His law. We are enabled by divine grace to obey that law. You know, the best football players in the world who play in the NFL have to work very hard to get to where they are. They have to practice and run and exercise and face injuries and play through constant soreness. But for many of them, it's not a burden because they love what they do. For many mothers, you know that childhood, raising children is hard. You had to carry a baby for nine months. You were in labor, intense labor for hours. You had to get up at all hours of the night to feed the newborn baby. It's difficult, but it's a joy, isn't it? Because you love your baby. So what you love will drive you, even if it's hard. You'll find joy in doing what you love. So it is with a Christian. Even if obeying God's law is difficult, even if it's hard at times, it's not a burden. It isn't an oppressive weight on us because we love God and we love His law. Paul Washer, I'm going to paraphrase him, he really brought out a problem in many people's thinking when it comes to Christianity. You know, there's this idea that you know, Christianity means I've got to avoid all the bad things that I really love and engage in all the dumb religious things that I really hate, but I need to do all this because I need to live up to the standard. That's not Christianity. That's a lost person. That's a legalist. If you find obeying the law of God an overwhelming, joyless burden, it's probably because you're not born of God. You're not born again. His commandments are not burdensome. True Christianity is not about avoiding the bad things we love and doing the good things we hate. True Christianity is about loving God, loving His law, loving what He loves, hating what He hates, and therefore delighting in obedience. We delight in the law of God. So why do we obey God's law? Because we love God. Because we love God, we love others, therefore we love the law. In Matthew 11.30, as Jesus extended an invitation to weary sinners, He told them this, My yoke is easy, and my burden is light. The load that comes upon disciples of Jesus is an easy load, a light load, compared to the impossible standards of men that have no spiritual significance anyway. Christ's commandments are easy. They deal with love. They direct our love. They are the delight of the believer's heart. There is a biblical illustration of this principle that love drives us with joy in our labor. In Genesis chapter 29, verse 20, we read that Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of his love for her. That's amazing, isn't it? Most of us husbands wish we could say that, right? We need to do a little better. His love for her made his labor seem light by way of comparison. That's the way it is with a child of God. Our labor, our obedience to the law of God, our fighting against sin, our subduing the flesh, all of that is a joy because of our love for the Savior. That's Christianity. If that's not in your heart today, then friends, my plea to you is that you would come to Christ in real saving faith. My hope is that God would not just bring you to make some intellectual decision, but that He would radically change your heart so that you love Him and delight in Him. And then you'll find obedience to be a joy. This delight in God's law was expressed all throughout Scripture, but Psalm 119 in particular is a wonderful passage that over and over again emphasizes the psalmist's love for God's law. Listen to some of the statements he makes there in Psalm 119. 
Verse 14 says, I have rejoiced in the way of your testimonies as much as in all riches. In other words, I love your word more than money, more than wealth. If you could say that, you'd be in the word, wouldn't you? If you could say that you truly love the word of God more than you love money, you'd find yourself more often in the word, reading it, studying it, and obeying it. Psalm 119.16 adds, I shall delight in your statutes. I shall not forget your word. Verse 35, Make me walk in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Verse 47, I shall delight in your commandments, which I love. Verse 77, Your law is my delight. We could go on and on and on. But verse 97 really provides a good summary here. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Is that your heart toward the law of God? Can you say that? Do you love the Word of God? Do you devour it? Do you find joy in it? You can't obey it if you don't know it. You can't know it if you don't study it and read it. So that implies that you love to read and study the Word of God and to hear the Word of God on the Lord's day. Do you delight in His commandments? Do you love His Word? Do you find His commandments a joy in your heart? Or are they burdensome? A true believer loves God, loves the people of God, and therefore loves the law and obeys it. So that's mark number three. Obedience. But now we come back to the first mark. John likes to do that, doesn't he? He's not as linear as Paul. Sometimes you've got to mess up your preaching outlines. But we're back to point number one again. That is faith. Faith. Look at verse 4. For whatever, or whoever, it's the same Greek word back in verse 1, the word pos, it means the whole of every kind. It's a comprehensive word. Whoever is born of God overcomes the world. I told you that to be born of God is to have a new heart. It's to have new affections. It's to possess the life of God, the nature of God, the seed of God. It is to be a new creature in Christ. It's to be brought into the family of God and have a change of nature. And all Christians have experienced that. And all who have experienced that glorious reality have overcome the world. We are overcomers. The word overcomes, as you know, translates the Greek verb nikao. The noun form is nike. It's where we get the English word Nike from. The Greeks, by the way, had a goddess called Nike. She was the goddess of victory. Her Roman name was Victoria. But in reality, the only god of victory is the only god there is, the true and living god. He is the god of victory. This word nikao, it means to conquer, to defeat, to subdue. It denotes victory and triumph. The word denotes that those who are born of God are victors, conquerors, winners, champions. And what is it that we've overcome? Well, back in chapter 2, verses 13 and 14, it's the evil one, Satan. In chapter 4, verse 4, it's them, that is, the false teachers. But here, it's the world. For whoever is born of God overcomes the world. The word world here is cosmos. It's where we get the English word cosmos. And it just means an ordered system. An ordered system. Here, it refers to the system of evil within the world. The satanic system ruled by sin and Satan. Down in verse 19, John says, The whole world lies in the power of the evil one but not us. Not believers. Not Christians. We have overcome that evil satanic world system. We have conquered it. We have overcome its deception, its delusion, its enticement, and therefore we've overcome its destruction, its damnation. We are not going to be damned with the world because we've overcome it. We have overcome so as not to be led astray by the world. We're no longer enslaved in this system of evil. No longer entrapped within it. Why? Because God chose us out of the world. That's why. 
That's why Jesus said, I don't pray for the world, I pray for those you've given me out of the world. A particular people, a unique people, that God has chosen out of the world, given to the Son, and belong to Him. We're chosen out of the world. We've been transferred out of the domain of darkness into the kingdom of God's beloved Son. We're liberated from the dominion of Satan, the power of sin, the deception of false teachers, the lust of the world, and therefore we have overcome. Notice that in the English text here, in verse 4, John uses the word for. He begins with the word for. It's the Greek word hati. It's a causative conjunction. It's a word that links what comes before with what comes after. It could be translated because. John is saying, why? Do true Christians love God and keep His commandments? Because they have overcome the world. That's why. Because they see through the world's deception and its delusion, and therefore they choose the better way of love and obedience to the commandments of God. We have overcome. By the way, this means that if you still love the world, you still belong to the world. And you're going to perish with the world. Remember what John said back in chapter 2, verses 15 through 17? Do not love the world. For if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Then in verse 17 he adds, The world is passing away, and also its lust. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. In other words, you can't love the world and love God. Take your pick. Which one are you going to have? They're opposed to each other. You can either love God and His commandments, or you can love sin and the evil world system. But you can't straddle the fence. You can't have both. You can't have one foot in the kingdom of God and one foot in the world. It's not the way it works. You either love the world and you perish with it, or you love the will of God and you live forever. Those are the options. Which one have you chosen? Which one have you chosen? True Christians love God, keep His commandments, and overcome the world. And why is it that we overcome? Is it because of our ingenuity, our wisdom, our strength? Of course not. We know why we overcome, don't we? Scripture tells us why. In John 16.33, Jesus said, In the world you have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. That's why we overcome. Jesus overcame the world. He gained the victory for us. We have, as we're going to sing in a minute, victory in Jesus. Revelation 12.11 says, We overcome because of the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. We overcome in Christ. This means that our victory is a vicarious victory. It's a substitutionary victory. It was won on our behalf by our champion, our Savior, the Lord Jesus. The victory is accomplished by Him, and it's only shared in by those who belong to Him, those who are in union with Christ by faith. We may lose battles, but the ultimate victory is already won. It's already guaranteed. Christ is the reigning champion whose title reign will have no end and we are co-champions in Him. Isn't that amazing? We're not talking about your best life now. We're not talking about getting the better parking spot of the mall. We're talking about overcoming sin, deception, and judgment. That's what we're talking about. Victory in Christ. Now, this doesn't mean that our lives are going to be easy, right? We know that. Maybe you're thinking, wait a minute, I don't feel like an overcomer. You may have battles that you lose, but you may lose battles with sin. You may face temptation. In fact, you're going to. That's a guarantee. Jesus said that you have to deny yourself, take up your cross, follow Him, that you're going to be hated by the world, persecuted, etc. It just means that ultimate victory is guaranteed. We experience that victory now, but the fullness of it awaits the new heavens and the new earth, the eternal state, when we reign and rule with Christ forever. But we are overcomers. We will never perish. We will never fully and finally be deceived. We will remain faithful to Him until the end because He keeps us. 
and then we will reign with him in eternal glory. We are overcomers. Turn for a moment to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. As you already know, the book of Romans is my favorite book of the Bible. That's why I turn here every sermon, right? I love the book of Romans. It is the most clearest, systematic, profound exposition of the Gospel in all of Scripture. Paul has explained the glorious reality of justification, the reality of sanctification. And now in chapter 8, he explains the reality of preservation and glorification. That is, that God keeps those whom He saves and He brings them to eternal glory. The first five chapters deal with the fact that we're free from sin's penalty. The sixth chapter deals with the fact that we're free from sin's power. Chapter 7 says we're not yet free from sin's presence, but chapter 8 says we will be. We will be. Romans 8, Paul explains this victory to us gloriously, starting in verse 31. Verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him over for us all, how will He not also with Him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? Who can, who can accuse you of being guilty? No one. God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Who can bring condemnation to you as a believer? No one. Christ Jesus is He who died. Yes, rather, who was raised. He died for you. He took your condemnation. Now He lives to plead your justification. Verse 35, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But here it is. But in all of these things we overwhelmingly conquer through Him who loved us. Huper nikao, hyper conquerors, super victors. In Christ. 38. I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That covers it all, doesn't it? Nothing can separate you from salvation, from God, from Christ, because you are an overwhelming conqueror in Him. He's gained the victory. Glorious stuff. Now, what is it that is the reward for those who overcome? What is promised to the overcomers? Go to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. That's the last book of the Bible, by the way. Very end of the right. A lot of views on Revelation, but regardless of your views of the end times, regardless of how you view the structure of Revelation and the fulfillment of its prophecies, one thing is clear. The ultimate message in Revelation is that God wins. Christ wins. He will have victory over all of His enemies and all believers share in that victory. And Revelation defines it for us. Revelation chapter 2, starting in verse 7. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. You know this is going to be good. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. If you overcome, you're going to be in the paradise of God, eating from the tree of life. You're going to have eternal life, and you're going to be with Christ forever. It's good news. Now look at verse 11. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. In other words, if you overcome, you're not going to hell. You will escape the lake of fire. You may experience the first death, physical death, but you will not experience the second death, eternal and spiritual death forever in hell. Verse 17. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone, and a name written on the stone which no one knows but he who receives it. 
That's glorious, isn't it? I don't even know what all that means, do you? A new name, a white stone, hidden manna. Sounds good to me. I'll take it. That's promised to all overcomers, all believers. Verses 26 through 28, chapter 2. He who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds until the end, that's the same person, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces, as I also have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. Wonderful. If you overcome, you will rule and reign with Christ forever. You're going to rule with Him, reign with Him. You ever thought that way? And He'll give you the morning star. Revelation calls Jesus the morning star. You're going to have Jesus in the fullness of His glory, and you're going to reign with Him. Chapter 3 now. If that isn't enough, there's more. Chapter 3, verse 5. He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments, and I will not erase His name from the book of life, and I will confess His name before my Father, and before His angels. If you overcome, you're going to be clothed in white garments. That's probably a reference to glorification when we're made really perfect, actually perfect at the resurrection in the new heavens and the new earth. You'll never have to deal with sin anymore then. Temptation will be gone. And you'll never have your name blotted out. You'll have your name confessed before God. You'll have eternal life, eternal security. Look at verse 12 now. Chapter 3, verse 12. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will not go out from it anymore, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God in my new name. Amazing. You'll be in the temple. The temple, by the way, is going to be God's presence itself. There's no temple in the new heavens and the new earth. And you'll never go out of it. You'll never leave the saving, special presence of God. You'll be there forever. One more, verse 21. He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my Father on His throne. Wonderful promise. We're going to reign with Him, rule with Him, be glorified with Him, right? Paul said, if you suffer with Him, you'll be glorified with Him. That's your hope, Christian. This is what God promises to you if you are an overcomer. Back to 1 John chapter 5 now. 1 John 5. These are the precious and magnificent promises made to those who overcome. But now the question is, how do we practically go about overcoming? How do we get in on this victory? How do we share in it? The rest of verse 4 answers that. Verse, 1 John 5 verse 4 again. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. How do you gain a victory? How do you have victory in Jesus? How do you partake of the promises of Revelation 2 and 3? Faith. Faith. Every believer is an overcomer. Verse 5 further elaborates on that. John says, Who is the one who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. That's the overcomer. The one who has faith. We believe that Jesus is the Christ, verse 1. That He's the Messiah. We believe that He's God, verse 5. He's the Son of God. He's divine. He's one in nature with the Father. He is God the Son. True Christians believe that. The overcomer is the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Faith, love, obedience. These are the three marks of an overcomer. These are the marks of one born of God. True Christians believe the truth about Jesus, they love God and His people, and they obey His commandments. These are the tests of saving faith. How about you? How does your life measure up to this? Do you pass the test? Do you possess the marks of an overcomer? The characteristics of one born of God? Very simple. Do you believe the truth about Jesus? Do you love God and His people? 
And is your life marked by obedience to His commandments? If not, please come talk with me today. I would be glad to help you attain this assurance and find salvation in Christ. But if so, if you pass the test, if these are the marks of your life, you can know that you are a born-again overcomer. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul once again describes this victory for us. Let me read his words there from verses 54 through 57. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable, and this mortal will have put on immortality, that is, at the resurrection, then will come about the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Victory in Jesus. Do you share that victory this morning? I hope so. Let's pray. Father, we give praise and honor to You for Your love for us. For Your work of salvation and sending Your Son and choosing us, a people who are wretched and sinful before the foundation of the world that we might be holy and blameless before You. And we give honor and praise to You, Lord Jesus, God the Son, You who came from heaven to earth, You who suffered in our place, purchased our redemption, You who overcame the world on our behalf so that we now share in that victory. And we worship and praise You, O Holy Spirit, for Your sovereign and effectual work of applying the Gospel to our hearts and taking the victory of Christ and making it our own by Your sovereign work within us. Lord, thank You for this wonderful, wonderful reality of overcoming the world through Christ. Help us now as we go out, Lord, about the rest of our day and week to live our lives as those who have overcome, as those who have victory over sin and Satan, as those who are dead to sin and alive to God in Christ, as those who no longer belong to the world but belong to the Savior, as those who are citizens of the kingdom of God. Help us to live our lives for Your glory, we pray. Amen.